Chai is very smart, enthusiastic, and energetic. She's just so easygoing. It's really easy to enjoy her company. She encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone and take another step forward. She cared a lot about me as a person, as a human being. And those things are making a difference. She really does care about her students' success. And that was a driver for me to feel like, well, if somebody believes in me like that, I definitely want to live up to that belief. I would say that Ka is probably one of the women I look to the most in terms of somebody that I would like to pattern my life after because she's warm and caring and she considers other people's opinions and voices and really promotes ideas that I think are, are amazing. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. You just heard the voices of Risela Feliciano, Meredith Hecker, Beth Lask, and Dorisella Eastman. They're talking about Dr. Ke Wu, professor in UM's Department of Mathematical Sciences. I'm your host, Ashby Kinch, Associate Dean of the Graduate School. I'm delighted to share my conversation with Ke, who has an impressive track record as a mentor of graduate students, particularly emphasizing support of women and people of color in math disciplines. Ke has a diverse educational background, including degrees in law and policy, counseling psychology, and applied and computational math. This array of experience underpins her research on the educational practices of STEM disciplines and has led her to important international and regional collaborations to improve math education. Every episode on Confluence, our guests read a passage about rivers drawn from literature. For this episode, we are thrilled to share a passage of Chinese poetry, Ascending the Heron Tower, by the 8th century Tang Dynasty poet Huang Shihuang. You'll hear Ke read it in the original Mandarin, followed by an English translation, which leads directly into our conversation about her upbringing in Hunan province, her educational journey, and her inspiration to come to Montana. We also discuss her recent work on grants to support Native American professional growth and a key emerging idea, humanizing mathematics. This movement aims to optimize the potential of learners from a diverse range of backgrounds. We're excited to share our conversation with listeners who will learn a lot from Ku's journey from China to Montana. Welcome to Confluence, where the river is always with us. This is a poem written by Wang Zhihuan. Huang He Ru Hai Liu Yu Chung Qian Li Mu Geng Shang Yi Cheng Lou. Thank you for joining us on Confluence, Ku. Thank you for having me. Well, so for uh, English listeners, I'm going to read a translation of the Wang Zhiwang poem. The sun behind the western hills glows toward the sea where the yellow river flows. Wish to see further an endless view? Mount one more story and higher rise. What a lovely poem. Much more beautiful in the original. Um, Tell us about that poem. Why did you choose it and, and what does it mean to you? I love this poem um, for several reasons. It, the first two sentences 
were about capture a majestic, huge vision or picture of the, the mountains, the sunset, as well as the Yellow River, which is what we Chinese call the Mother River、um, in my culture. So the Yellow River runs to toward the sea. So that captures a, a beautiful view of the Mother Nature.、Mm. Then the next two sentences give you a kind of philosophical kind of aspect. And、uh, if you want to see further with a bigger vision, then you need to go up higher.、Uh, in this poem, it's go up to the next level, upper of the tower. Yeah. Does the Heron Tower itself have any significance, cultural significance? Well, it is a a, a tower that that's built、uh, by the Yellow River. I think it was in Shanxi Province. So. I grew up in in Henan Province, which literally translate translate Henan as the south part of the river. It's south part of the Yellow River. So the Yellow River、um, runs miles, thousands of miles in in China, across from the、um, west、uh, inner land through the desert where the silver silver road、mm-hmm. had started. Then it has a, a lot of cultures. Then in ancient times. People live by water, right, by the river. So it provides also fertilization of the land, so people can plant also of greens, foods, and so on. So that's where the culture started. And 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 it's where you started, right? So it's your homeland. And Hunan is is different、uh, language. It's a different culture. You want to talk a little bit about that? About sort of what does it mean to be、uh, within Chinese culture from Hunan rather than from one of the、uh, Beijing or one of the major cities. Yes, Henan is.、Um, it's in the plain. It, the, the the province is on the plain ground. So it's one of the roots of a, a long history of Chinese culture. So so for example, we have、uh, the the most you know ancient people live、uh, in in my province. Started the you know the language, the China and and other like Chinese Kung Fu came from the Shaolin Temple, which is in Henan Province. So a lot of cultures, languages, and so on rooted from where the plain, which is right by the river, the water,、um, that's where it, it started.、Mm. So it has. I, I often say, oh, I come from a small town. I grew up in Xinjiang City, of two million people. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's a a place, lot of rich culture, history, but lots of populations as well. Right. The concept is totally different. Why is a small town here? People say small town of like a couple of hundreds or a couple、yeah. of thousands of people, right? right? Right. And in Montana, of course, Missoula is a big city. <laughs> right. 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 The other day, I was just thinking about this definition of ruralness is so relative, in a sense. Even people from East Coast, they say, "Oh, rural. The whole Montana is rural area, right?"、Yeah. So versus, I say,、uh, "I grew up in a rural small town of two million people." Right. Right. <laughs> so. But a labor-intensive culture, requiring a lot of manual labor to produce the agricultural system over over the many many centuries. And so, tell me a little bit about your educational journey. I mean, what took you from Hunan、uh, Province to Beijing University, where you first studied? Yeah, so it, it, it is a, a a big change.、Uh, I went to the university,、uh, Beijing University of Aeronautics and Astronautics, for law degree study. And it's the field I study was more of the laws in ideological and educational administration. So、um, that is a huge change for me as a 19 years old to go to an even bigger city, living on a campus that has 
uh, a lot of intelligent, you know, people like uh, when I was in high school in my hometown, like I'm one of the best students, right? You right. don't have to study very much. You, you, you still get very good grades if we say grades is a measure. But uh, in college, I realized, oh, you know, in Chinese, we say shan wan you shan means the mountains. There are always higher mountains outside what you're seeing. Oh, what a great, yeah, what a great. I mean, we, I think we say big fish in a, in a small pond, ah. uh, that is a, but that's a much more captivating. There's always a, another horizon beyond. Yeah. beyond. Yes. So that's when I realized, oh, wow, the, my, my classmates are super intelligent. The, the faculty members here are, you know, have frontier research and so on. So it's, it's an eye-opening experience. Yeah. And, and, and you completed the degree, in, and I think the formal name of it is Ideological and Political Education Administration, which I think in, in the American system would be like a law and policy type degree, but then decided not to pursue that. Right. So through the study, this, my educational journey is so different. Uh, it's not a linear path, right? right. So I realized... Hmm. Th this field of working in a large cooperation um, to look at the, the laws or policies uh, regarding, you know, human resources and other aspects is not quite what I, I want to do. So I learned what I don't want. <laughs> then I became a middle school teacher in psychology, right? Teaching middle school there in, in a, a school in Beijing. And during that time, I realized I love teaching. Um, however, I realized... It back China back then did not have an area called a school counselor. Mm. And the society when, is going through such big change. A lot of kids that I teach definitely have high needs of counseling or psychological, emotional support needs. Mm. But we don't have such, like here in U.S., there's school counselor, right? There are special education teachers. There are other professionals to support kids who have those kind of needs. Mm. We did not back then. Maybe that role would have been played more by family or a larger kin network or something. There wasn't a recognition yet of the need to tie it to the educational institution. Right. Got and it. this field is like, you know, psychology and so on. It's more Western-oriented uh, kind of field, right? So the, the you are right. So the role of family play a lot in that role. So I wanted to get some more of a advanced uh, kind of a higher education in the field. That's when I came to here in the United States to pursue a master's degree in counseling psychology. Right. So, so yeah, tell us about that. How, what was that process like? And were you comfortable right off the bat kind of moving into the American educational system or what kind of acclimation did that require? Yeah, it was interesting. So when I looked for graduate program, because Beijing is such huge city, metropolitan areas, it's a big city, right? So I want to I intentionally pick smaller campuses. Mm. So I picked a Yo on Minnesota Duluth campus. It's a relatively smaller town compared to Minneapolis and so on. Um, their counseling psychology program is pretty good. And I was the one, only one non-American student <laughs> in this whole program. Yeah. So it was fascinating to get to learn some of the cultural aspects of United States. You know, like it's Midwest and majority of graduate students come from Wisconsin, Minnesota. And so Midwest culture is very heavy there. Yeah. Um, and they, they are very friendly, lovely, nurturing people under the program. So I grew a lot through that program. Like I learned, did internship as school counselor in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And then that's why I realized, hmm, my background 
growing up in China is fantastic. However, as a counselor, you need a lot of grounded knowledge on, like movies, for example,、mm-hmm. some kind of very tiny like language. Yeah. If your client says it, if I as a counselor did not catch it,、mm-hmm. I won't be will not be able to provide a high quality of counseling. To support this individual, interesting.、Yeah. So that's why I really kind of、okay. subtle cultural signals that, yes. that that you might not pick up on. I don't think I will ever be able to pick up、yeah. by not growing up in this country in this culture. So that's when I started to feel like okay, I need something else to 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 add on to my professional profile.、Mm. So when I was working on my、uh, thesis for the counseling psychology, I started to become a TA for the mathematics department there. And during the time of this is another. Whether we call failure of a story or success story, it took me two years to finish my master's thesis for counseling psych,、mm. because my it, it's totally different field. Writing in English、right. is very different, right? Like IRB application, getting data, all took much longer than anticipated. So、yeah. meanwhile, but let's let's you know give yourself a break. That's your third <laughs> language, right? <laughs> After Hunan and Mandarin, and and you're learning a whole new field as well while you're doing it. That must have given you a great insight into how. Challenging graduate study can be right. I mean, the sense of the difficulties, right? And that that also gave me to become、uh, more patient、mm. with the the graduate students. It doesn't matter whether they are you know English is their native language or not, because there are, could be other kinds of cultural shifts or shots to our graduate students, right? So、yeah. I become more patient and to to see where are you. How, How things are working? Why it's not working? What can we do to help to support? Is it the extra time? Is it the additional, you know, sessions on learning how to write a scientific way? It took me two years finish yeah, my yeah. masters, so I'm more patient. Yeah, very empathetic. Yeah, and so so you made the shift to math and and stayed with it and did an entire PhD. Right, right. So it's it's sometimes you know you say you the life、uh, academic journey has your. Your intention, as well as sometimes it happens as it flows in the river, like this yeah, one, right?、Yeah. So when I was finishing、uh, the the master's degree in counseling psychology thesis,、uh, as a graduate student, you you have to have some kind of in- income, right?、Mm-hmm. So TA for math department is one of the possibilities, and they are so generous. It's, okay,、um, you can you know TA us and take some of our courses and so on. So I finished the master's degree. When I was working on the masters for the psychology degree, wow! So that's when I realized, wow, this is a beautiful field, mathematics, statistics, and then integrated my background in counseling psychology in how brain works, in how do we learn, how do we process information. So that's how I've come to the conclusion. Okay, first of all, education. I want to become a teacher,、uh, whether it's K twelve. Or professor at you know college,、um, because education as a field is highly respected in my culture. Yeah, tell me this proverb that you shared. It's beautiful. The share、right. this proverb.、Uh, yeah, it's it said, 十年种树，百年育人 It means it takes ten years to plant and grow a tree, and it takes hundreds of years to f- nurture people, right? So, so the education field is a field. That it takes time, generations of people to devote into it. 
So I want to become one of those people. Yeah. And I mean, I love that proverb because it reflects such a great um, historical sensibility of the Chinese people that that the depth of our system goes back in time, you know, that you don't just make it up, uh, you know, on the fly and that there's a history behind it that's carried forward. I think that's really important, that sense of what we bring with us to the journey. Right. And, and it's that like, it gives you a sense of education is such an important foundation. It It's not a quick, fast food shot to get it you know, done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes generations and time and uh, resources. And patience. Patience, mm-hmm. right. Wonderful. And so so after having completed this PhD, um, you now were faced with a kind of new, you, you never had an inclination to go back to China. You kind of wanted to stay in the United States system. And tell us about that set of decisions and how you ended up here. Yeah, that's a very good question. So I always have this mixed feelings of one eye crying of, uh, you know, excitement, appreciation about opportunities to stay in this country because the United States has such advanced culture and an environment to support uh, research, support immigrants, support people who have different thoughts and so on. Um, on the other side, I have the other eye always crying <laughs> because I miss the, my, my home culture where I grew up, yeah. right? The people, majority of my family are still in China. Mm. The food, um, the language, um, the, the, the the everything there too. So it's always a mixed struggle of where to go. Um, to me, I was fortunate enough to, during my eight years of graduate education <laughs> here, uh, to receive scholarships, either it's TA, uh, you know, teaching assistantship or research assistantship, I feel I own the people of this country mm. who pay the taxes for, for me to get a scholarship, right? So in that sense, like, okay, this is a wonderful culture that welcome immigrants and so on. Uh, and I, I benefit from the system here in the sense that we should receive the scholarships to support my graduate education, eight years, that's a long time, yeah. a lot of money, right? Yeah. So I'd better pay back to the people of this country. So that's I can't why. tell you how happy that makes me to hear this, hear you say it, but just because uh, there's two sides to that. One is that that um, it's good to talk about how we invest our taxpayer money in education, right? You know, it's, but but then now you're sort of saying you feel like there's a reciprocal obligation then to pay back to, to pay that forward, and and clearly in your work you've done so, right? That you so so you you knew you wanted to. Uh, apply to public universities and you knew you kind of had a profile of universities in America that you might want to apply to. Right. So I looked, it's my field in mathematics education is somewhat by the time I graduated, the the, the job market is super hot, meaning Mm -hmm. every PhD, we don't even need to do postdoc because postdoc often is a transition from the doctoral education to the professional or faculty position, right? So my field often does not need it because the market is so hot in the sense every graduate or PhD would have three to four tenure track positions waiting for you. Oh, wow. So I had an option. I applied, you know, I picked the places I want to apply for and got offers like from the East Coast, very good institutions and the, and here. So the salary is very different, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Montana wins because of the this place is quite a special. Yeah. Um, I, I had the opportunity to visit the Glacier National Park in 2006, and that's before I graduated. It, it was such a wonderful experience to be, to see the mountains, the water, and it just almost appeared to be magic. Um, so 
that's why why I pick a, a place here、uh, versus somewhere like Boston College and so on. So the offer got turned down there because this place is so special. And another reason is the people. So I had the really wonderful interview experience on site here. The mathematics department here, colleagues are very. Down to the earth kind of people,、yeah. so you don't see like in, when I was in the graduate program、uh, in Minnesota,、uh, I had the experience of hearing faculty f- yelling at each other in the hallway, for example, or you know in the different fields in math education, whether you're in the mathematics department or education,、um, there are tensions and so on. There's no such thing here. Even now, right? So, so my colleagues here, the people, the faculty here, are so supportive and understanding. That's something very unique on this campus. Yeah, and I mean, you've tied in in a very powerful way to that unique aspect of place here, right? That that so much of your work has been about trying to support、uh, people of color,、uh, especially Native students.、Uh, let's talk a little bit about that work because this. Energizing、uh, idea in the field of humanizing mathematics.、Uh, you're the first person I've heard, you know, say that phrase. So tell us more about that phrase. What does it mean, and what is the field kind of thinking about in terms of shifting its attention? So, mathematics field has been. Let, let me use an example. If people ask, "What do you do?" I say, "I teach mathematics at a college." They would have first like, "Wow." I hate math. There's、yeah. pretty big portion of people say that. Then the other people say, "I'm good at math." <laughs>、uh, but this field, in a sense, become in the in the way that often it's somewhat to appear to be objective,、mm. right? Equations and so on. The the human sides somehow got lost through whether you know we set up this educational system, the curriculum, and so on, the pedagogy. So. In, in in recent moment, you know, COVID nineteen pandemic, it has brought up and the pandemic of social injustice toward Black, Asian, American Indian, other people of color. So it bring up our field to reflect on what can we do. There is something we have not done well to help foster more humanized experiences in the learning of mathematics, starting young age. Up to the college level, so that's something. It's I'm not the first person to bring this concept up, but it's it bring up sometimes. It this gives you the, you know the whether we call yin yang or two aspects of anything, right? So the pandemic is horrible. On the other side, it woken up a lot of people in in, in education, in teacher educators, in teachers to reflect upon what what can we do to Change because obviously things there are things not working well.、Mm. So we and the lost- pandemic may, may have just brought those to the surface and and made more people pay attention to them. Right, right. So for example, the 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 mathematics education group at the、uh, Montana State U- University Bozeman campus and us here, your Montana Missoula campus, we decided to collaborate on the math at a seminar. In last fall, and we choose to to study and learn about the social justice and inclusion in mathematics. In a sense, is rehumanizing mathematics, right? So, so we we read, we we listen to podcasts, and so on. And then we have discussions and to learn to see how how we as math research, math education researchers, teacher educators, and、uh, and people in general to help support and foster this kind of shift in our. 
uh, educational system, right? So I also have people like my older son's teacher who is a you know first grade teacher talk to me about um, the the classroom school environment、uh, curriculum. How do we make sure the gender topic is addressed appropriately, right?、Mm-hmm. So, so like example, I heard. My son came home, sing songs like you know, dog, dog boys are doctors, girls are nurses. That just made me mad, right? <laughs> so we we talk to the teachers, and then they address it. They have talk about how there are different identities, and how you know, even in first grader, it's a topic that、uh, if we avoid it, then there are some subtle implicit biases and culture. Would f- pass along to our children,、mm. right? So, so this teacher openly talked about and what other resources are there, and, and then, she, then she adapted into her classroom. And then they also talk about the different, you know, they talk about the cruel language in counting, in mathematics, and so on. So, so bringing mean, Indian education for all principles into the math classroom. In other words, not seeing it as something kind of to the side, but actually bringing it right into the math room. Right,、I、in a very、that. natural way, not. Appear to be super artificial, right? So it's kind of what what are the other language languages to say one to ten, and how do you add and so on. So it's fascinating to see our teachers in the field bring more of this kind of inclusive and culturally sensitive or or culturally. Responsive kind of curriculum into their classroom. This might be a bit of a digression, but I'm kind of curious when you say that one to ten paradigm.、Um, you know, there has been some neuroscientific research on the problems that English speakers have with counting because of our number system. So even though that's a completely natural concept, right? We all grow up learning how to say ten, eleven, twelve, but eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen are weird numbers. And the French, you know, are way worse.、Uh, you know, they have the they say eighty by saying quatre vingt, right? Four times twenty, which makes no sense at all. But it's an ancient cultural practice, right? That has continued in the present. But it actually inhibits math learning.、Uh, and I think Chinese functions differently there and is much、right. more efficient. Do you want to、right. say a it, word about yes, that? Yes, it is more of a Chinese more a multiplicative system. It's based on system. So we say say ten, twenty, thirty. We say 十二十三十 That means one ten, two ten, three ten. Right, right. Right. So it gives you the multiplicative. It tells you two groups of ten. That's twenty. Yeah. Versus English is one like twenty twenty. What,、yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, you can't back derive twenty thirty forty. It doesn't really make sense. So yeah, that's a great example. And, and so this is a place where cultural knowledge. Understanding that there's a difference actually frees teachers up to think about what they need to do with a set of students that's different. They can't naturalize. They can't just accept the cultural assumptions. I think that's really important. I know it's a digression, kind of from where we are headed, but I think it's a good point about your overall project of humanizing math. That that this actually does have a kind of Practical implication to effectiveness of teaching, and one of those areas would be modeling. I, I think this is really important in your work. That、uh, as a female mathematician in a male-dominated field, right, and as a non-white mathematician, you model for students this possibility that m- they might not get in their in their other environments. Right. So this the power of seeing someone like you in the profession or the field. That you want to be is extremely important, and there has been research done to show that the model of people of color or the model of Native American faculty members or staff on campus just by seeing someone to see the possibility to be there is very important for our students to to see. 
Yeah, and you've built that into your research. So let's talk a little bit about that. That, that one of the things I'm sure when you started your journey from uh, from Beijing to the United States, you hadn't probably anticipated, but it's been really central to your work is working with Native American culture. So now um, over the last several years between PNW Cosmos and now Willow Grant, you're working on really important projects for cultivating uh, Native graduate students. Could you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. So I was a participant as a faculty in the PMW Cosmos project. So I participated in their MP's Indigenous Mentoring Program modules and worked with my grad students who's native uh, on the project to learn about the, uh, the, the culture, for example, how indigenous research methodologies are quite different from our Western research methodologies, right? So the ways of knowing uh, from an indigenous way perspective is different. The concept is different, right? So um, in that sense, uh, I learned a lot of the strategies and, and understanding of uh, native culture uh, and so the way of learning and so on. So then with that, that applies to, this is an analogy often people say, uh, anything you learn in, in one aspect or a special group would benefit all, mm. right? So it's not like I only apply the knowledge I learned into the native students' population, it also applied to other students and so on to be more sensitive to their background, their assets, where they come from and so on. So that bring into the next one is the so the, the, research, the, the Willow National Science Foundation funded this Willow AGAP uh, Alliance project supporting Native American faculty success is a project that's a collaboration with us, University of Montana and the two tribal colleges, University of uh, Kootenai College and the Sitting Bull College. The overall goal of the project, well, the project has about um, 20 researchers. Half of them are Native American. Half of them are people like me, Asian or uh, women in science and so on. So, so we worked together in the past few years to um, learn and de- gather data, do re- research, to learn, develop a model that would include three interconnected components. Um, first one would be the uh, indigenous mentoring component for faculty who are native. Then another p- component is what we call the research publication and grant preparation program. And the third component currently we're working on is this what we call in institutional support component. So we use this willow as native plant willow as a metaphor to see those components. Some of them are roots, like institutional environment support program is the roots of the willow, right? Then we have the the stem of the willow as the um the mentoring program, then then our research publication might become the leaves. The leaves, yeah. They, As they, it flowers. Yeah. Yes, right. So so those, those this program is to again we, we learn a lot. It's not so recently I'm doing re- reflection on what's the role as researchers, someone like me who's non-native, working with native populations to support. Now first of all we need to learn how do they define for example, definition of success, right? So success is not a a word in native languages, right? So when we talk, writing proposal, our native elders say, our language don't even have this word. (laughs) We have the concept in it, in our languages and culture, but it's different. This is a Western definition. Mm. So we need to learn how do our Native American faculty member define the concepts of success? Without knowing that, or with knowing that, then we can start 
working with them to shape our program's model that would support um, their success, right? Or, or professional satisfaction, whatever we call. Yeah. So, so and, and for a native community, it's often going to involve some sense of a community uplift, right? In other words, it's not going to be the individual. It's going to be the whole community. And, and I think that's such an important component. I, I'd like to kind of go back a step because I think the the connection between Cosmos and Willow that I that I find really compelling from the grad school perspective is that you're looking at this entire educational journey, what I've been calling the vertical journey, that you think about a student um, you know, that might attend a tribal college uh, and it might only be a two-year college and then they go on and get a BA and they might be the first in their family to do each of those steps, but then that master's is another step and then the PhD is another. And so these two grants together are kind of looking at this whole life cycle. And one component of the cosmos that I think really struck me and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that home visit. Um, the, the, the faculty member being asked to come with the native student to a community and, and learn from the ground up, or, you know, it's not necessarily going to be there for months, right? But a few days to learn something locally about what, what that experience is like. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Sure. So I, I think it, it's a shift of how we look at the relationship of faculty and our graduate student. Often in the, in the old way, we would say, hmm. Do you fit into our college? Do you fit into our program? If you fail a course, maybe this is not a good fit, right? Yeah, the deficit is on your side. Exactly. So the, the perspective is more of, if we use power dynamics, it's more of us, the institution is more in a powerful position and someone like a native student has to fit into our system. So that concept of home visit, it comes from, I think, the, if you use critical risk theory or, or tribal crit theory, it's more of shifting the power dynamics to say, no, 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 no. We as an institution, we as a faculty need to learn what are the cultural assets and community well-being, their cultural language strength this student bring to us and to have a better understand because then we can work with the family once we have a better sense of where this native student come from. Maybe the dialogue more coming from talking to the mom if a student needs a little bit of push on certain things, right? Rather than working directly with this kid. So I think that there is a shift of this home visits is to learn and first of all, put ourselves as faculty members as an equal appear relationship with being respectfully reaching out to learn who the student is, where the student come from, and what can we do together, togetherness to support this individual to be successful? Yeah. And you've taken, and I think that's such an important point, you've taken that very broadly in your in your support and understanding of your role as a mentor to every graduate student, whether they're native or not. And I think that's such a powerful part of what your mentoring role, you in particular, is on campus, that you bring such energy and support to your students. Um, Tell me a little bit about that, about you know, what are you looking for in a graduate student when they apply and what do you see as the kind of goal uh, of the graduate journey for your students? So for me, because you, can, you hear my educational journey, it's not a straight linear, perfect linear line getting into grad school. So I have, a, and not just me, I think many different de degree programs, the graduate committee and so on, start to shift the ground when a student apply into our program we look for different things to have a holistic view, understanding of who this individual is. Does this individual have a academic 
content and knowledge ready for our, our program. So we look at, so the GRE score is not something that we take very serious anymore because it's research has shown it's not a pre- good predictor for the success of our graduate study. So we look more of the coursework a student did. We pay very close attention to the in, individual's personal statement uh, if, because that document tells us the, the, the voice from this applicants, their own story on who they are, why are they applying for a graduate program, do they have the motivation, and then we we look at the the letter of recommendations to see the some of our colleagues or other people, how in their perspective on this individual, what are the strengths, what are the the some of the areas that the student can learn more and so on. So it's more of a holistic perspective of the individual, um, whether the student is ready or not. Mm. And then when they're here, you're kind of doing that same thing, but you're trying to propel them forward, right? right. You're trying to sort of say, okay, you know, we here's where we need need to see growth. We we need here's and then here's what you can see as an asset. So, what would you consider to be a kind of goal or benchmarks that you're looking for in your students' growth throughout the course of a degree? And let's let's focus on the PhD. I think that's okay. because of the longer period of time right. there. Well, let let me come back to one more aspect on why I look at the graduate applications. Sure, um, is that uh, we also think a a way of this dual direction fitness. Because sometimes an individual doesn't quite know what the specialty of this graduate program is for. Mm. And we need to have a judge on, are we a good fit for the student? Mm. As well as whether good st- a student is good fit for us. Mm. Right? Sometimes we might say, hmm, you, this program is not, you have a fantastic profile. Our program is not a good fit for you. Mm. Look into this university's grad program might be a better fit for you, right? Right, right? Then some other time we say, wonderful, you're interested in a PhD program. However, hmm. we think a master's degree program might benefit better hmm. to start with and see what it is like, Feel have a sense of the field, um, then decide, okay, do I want to go for a PhD or not? Yeah. So, so that application process, we as a grad committee members, we also have this kind of obligation to to help the students or candidate to look into the fitness or a good fit for each. It's a dual direction, yeah. right? The mentoring begins right from the very beginning. From the m- moment you're reading that application, you're already thinking about how do we work with the student. Yeah, right. I like that. Right. So come to your question on the PTD program. What are some of the benchmarks? So to me, there are several tiers or several, several aspects. One aspect is the professional knowledge in the field. So PhD in general is an a individual learn and know the knowledge in a very specific field in depth, right? So does this individual study and learn the knowledge necessary to become, become an expert in a very small, not broad, small, small specific area? That's the content and knowledge expertise. Often we measure it through a comprehensive exam to the student will pass it and or take it away or whatever. So the second area I would be looking for again, this is a PhD for is the student's research um, area of knowledge growth. Um, did the student learn the methodologies and have the experience of conducting some researches? And that does the student have experience of maybe working on the manuscript preparation or a proposal um, to learn the. The, the skills as a researcher, mm-hmm. you know, how to conduct the research literature, uh, how to 
apply different theoretical framework into a research or maybe not a, a adapt one because of ABC, right? So as a researchers, um, the, the growth, uh, both knowledge and the practice field. Um, so that's another layer. The, the, the third one, I, I believe it's more important is uh, as a human being growth, this social emotional um, growth as a person to be able to um, manage all sorts of demands such as granular program you know different coursework teaching assignments yeah. um the time pressures time deadlines pressure, dead the the psychology of rejection right yes, yes. you know find getting getting told no you know that going back to your original story about sort of realizing there's a bunch of smart people around it's one of the hardest things we, we talk about this a lot on confluence is that um, we want to normalize that it's okay to have these bumpy roads right we want to normalize that all of us face it you know all of us have gotten rejection letters and so that resilience is such an important component right and to make this uh the tension and challenge to be productive mm -hmm. right so uh, i i kind of wrote down uh Heather Kuhn's new book. Mm. Um, the book she talked about is this concept of from her the native culture's suffering. Suffering often is viewed as quite negative, depressing, and so on. It also has another side, like you said, is resilience and growing out of it, going through this process to learn more, become stronger, and mm. so on. So, so the graduate program certainly have this experiences we it's not pleasant nobody mm. wants it and also competitiveness right you compete mm. with other people and a proposal like i got so many rejections i tell my students and my graduates you got a girl's thicker skin it's okay <laughs> yeah, yeah right often we get reject the letter i have a question cry as well this is actually not too bad yeah 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 <laughs> right? it's a gentle rejection right it's a gentle rejection it's, the readers are quite gentle actually yeah she's like, what really yeah so, oh you, i've seen worse yeah i've yeah. been hammered down worse yeah right so it, it how, how do you shift this to view the rejections and the suggestions that that's hard to hear sometimes you need to make a critical decision like no this is not a, this reviewer does not even understand the context of what I was trying to say. Either I revise, make sure my context is clear. I'm not. I'm not going to accept the suggestion because it's not applicable to my right. manuscript. Right, 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 right. But but knowing how to kind of. Um, take the personal part of it out, the emotional part of it out, and, and get back to the work is such a key point. And I, I, my students um, uh, always hear this from me at some point in the, in the advising process, mentoring process. The Latin word uh, that underpins the word passion uh, is patior, which means to suffer, right? And and so people who grew up in a Christian tradition hear about the passion of Christ, right? And that that so it's it's suffering is an opportunity to reignite your motivation. It's it's an it's a it's a it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to find out uh, what you really what drives you, what's important to you, what are your values, you know, and keep keep pressing forward, right? Right. We end every episode the same way. We ask a few quick hitters. You ready for them? All right. Okay. Morning or night person? Night person. Western or Eastern Montana? Western. Yellowstone or Glacier? Glacier. Winter or summer? Both. I love clear fall seasons. You like all four? All four. Even the mud season? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, what's your favorite Montana river? Um, the Clark Fork. Why it's, is that? Just, it's right here on campus. Yeah. It's beautiful. 
beautiful. We floated. We do floating. It's, you can hear birds chirping. There are willows, native willows along the river. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is amazing. What's your favorite Montana mountain range? Ah,、uh, the Mission. Why is that? It, it, it's unspeakably beautiful, solid, grounded. There's something about them. It's just、uh, magic. The one piece of music you would be willing to listen to for eternity.、Um, Chinese flute. Chinese flute. It's there's something about it. The, the instrument and the song is so、um, <laughs> mellow, I guess. The last voice you hear in your head when you go to sleep at night. Oh, depends on. Sometimes I talk about how different things I appreciate.、Uh, the other day I appreciate a little bird we saved.、Um, Sometimes I reflect on the day what I did well, what I did not do. <laughs> so it it depends on. It's the voice in your head. Yes. It's your voice of conscience in your head. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Confluence Co. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you like what you've heard, you've got Charles Bolte to thank. He's a graduate of UM's program in environmental science and natural resource journalism. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana: Innovation, Imagination, and Intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. We'd like to thank UM School of Journalism and College of Business for their support. If you enjoyed this episode of Confluence, subscribe to our podcast feed at Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Give us a like on SoundCloud. And stop by the University of Montana Grad School website at www.umt.edu/grad for more episodes and videos highlighting our amazing graduate students. Make sure to rate and review to support our enterprise of bringing you the voices of graduate education at the University of Montana. See you on the next float.